take your Bibles and turn to me to the book of John. Book of John, we're going to the 19th chapter of the book of John. And this morning as I was waking up and doing my morning rituals, one of the things that I always do is I check the weather. And I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, most of you probably are, but the weather says that there are some storms rolling in this afternoon. This time of year around this part of the country, storms come. And we've become conditioned to understand the difference between a severe thunderstorm watch and warning and tornado watch and tornado warning. And one of the things that is true is whenever you hear those words on the television that there is a tornado warning in your area, you immediately seek refuge. Or at least you're supposed to, right? We were here at the church the other day, and I was actually in a meeting with Tom and Jim, and uh, we both got calls, or two of us got calls in pretty quick order that they had issued a tornado warning for this part of the country. For this particular area, and Goodlettsville was mentioned, and so immediately we looked online, I saw that it was supposed to be here about 4.30, it was like 4 o'clock, and we cleared the office quickly. Now, I don't know if any of you tried to call at 4.15, if you did, I'm sorry. Because I said, get out, let's go. So I got home, and in our house, we have one of those houses that from the front looks like a one-story, but it's got a bottom floor. It's not really a finished basement, but it's a bottom floor, and there's a storage room in there. And when I got there, Susan wanted to know if it was time to take cover. And I went and looked on the television and watched a little bit, and I said, it's time to take cover. And so immediately, they went into the safest place in our house. Now, I'm the dad, so I didn't go in. I had to watch the weather, right? I was looking out the window, seeing if I could see it, but they were in refuge. One of the funny things that happened is the boys didn't want to come out. They were in a dark room. Luke had a flashlight. They had crayons. What else do you need in life? But I got to thinking this week. You know, there's that phrase that I've used with you before that my father-in-law says all the time, and I'm sure he's not the first to say it. He was just the first one that said it where I understood it. And he talked about the fact that in life, we are always either getting ready for a crisis, we're in the midst of a crisis, or we're coming out of a crisis. And as I thought about that, immediately I began to think, you know, the truth is that in life in general, we are always either going into a storm, in the midst of a storm, or coming out of a storm. And as I began to think about that, I started to think, you know, in order for us to make it through life, we have got to find a place of refuge in the midst of those storms. Amen? I mean, if I don't have anywhere to which I can run, if I don't have anywhere that I can take refuge, then the storms will batter and beat and wear me down. Last week we started a quick series on the idea of hope. And this morning, the place that I want to talk about or the facet of hope that I want to talk about is the fact that in times of storms, in times of crisis, in times of real difficulty, where do you run for refuge? 
I mean, some of you are in this room and you know the storm is coming. You see the clouds gathering. You can look off in the distance and all the markers are there. Perhaps it's a relationship that you do everything in your power to keep together, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a, a child and you. You keep do everything you can to imagine to keep it together. But in the end, it is falling apart. Perhaps you bit off a little more than you could chew in the financial area or in school area or in life in general. And you don't know exactly how it's all going to turn out, but you can tell that one day the reckoning is coming. You can see it on the horizon. Perhaps it's an illness, either in your family or in yourself, that you know the clouds are gathering. And the question that I really want to talk about this morning is that we have to have a place to seek refuge in the midst of our storms. We have to have hope. You know, one of the most powerful motivators in the world is hope. Look at this verse of Scripture with me. Psalm 33, 22. You remember we're learning this, right? Right? Some of you hadn't thought about it since we did this last week, all right? May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. All right? Say that with me. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And the truth is that what we're talking about is this last week in the life of Christ shows us exactly that we can put our hope, our trust, our faith in the Lord. You see, when you think about it, there are common characteristics that come in the life of storms or things that happen in the storms that make us question who we are and whether we have hope. And we deal with issues like futility and failure and finality. This idea that we can't do anything about our circumstances. And a lot of times those circumstances are brought about because of problems that we create in our failings. And this idea that at some point that it's got to come to an end. And in the midst of all of that, we have to ask the question, where is our place of refuge? I want to tell you that this morning we're going to talk about putting our refuge, putting our place of rest of security in one day. In fact, in just a few hours within that day. You see, on that Friday that Jesus went to the cross, that one day was the culmination of all of history. And what happened on that day really is in within six hours, the culmination of all of history condensed into one specific moment. And what I want to tell you today is that we can find rest and hope and security not only in one day, not only in one six-hour period, but really in one word. You know, those six hours would have been normal to most people on the planet. 
Most people on the planet didn't wake up on that Friday thinking that there was something altering the universe at that moment. Most people didn't wake up that morning thinking that the next six hours were going to radically change the entirety of eternity. Most people got up and just did what they always did. And one of the things that always challenges me in the Scripture is the number of times we see God act in a major way in the midst of what seems like mundane, ordinary, everyday circumstances. What we have in this passage in the crucifixion of Jesus is all of history turning. The truth is that what we find in this little passage of Scripture, as we're willing to look, is that Christ has made a refuge for us by the choice that He made on that day. Look at chapter 19, starting in verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying His own cross. You know, there, there is nothing in the economy of the Word of God that is put there just by chance. And it is very specific that the Apostle John wants us to know that he carried his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. You know, we have, most of us in this room have seen video depictions of what the crucifixion of Jesus might look like. And a lot of them are too tame for what actually happened. And some claim that even a movie like The Passion of the Christ may have gone a little too far in depicting it. Here's one of the interesting things about Scripture is that when we get to that moment, when we get to the actual crucifixion moment, when we get to the actual scourging, flogging of Jesus, the biblical writers give us very little detail. Here's why I think that happens. is because they couldn't stand to relive it. Notice John. This is interesting to me. John spends half of his book telling us about the last week of Jesus and the second most important event of the week. Now, mind you, it is the second most important event of the week. The most important one is still coming. But the second most important event of the week, the crucifixion of Jesus, the actual putting Jesus on the cross, lifting Him up for all to see, is said in this kind of wording. Here, they crucified Him. You have to remember, there was one apostle at the foot of the cross, right? If there was anybody that could have given us the details, he could have. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested, Do not write the King of the Jews. This man claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I don't think that means that Pilate was converted. He was using Jesus as an example. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by life who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, 
They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. It's hard to imagine there were four guys there that day. Literally at the foot of the cross. Literally there with the Savior of the world as he died who didn't have a clue what was going on. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And the disciples, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her in. Verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. Verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I told you that there was going to be one word that was going to be the place where we can place everything we have in our lives. We can put our hope in. We can place as a place of refuge in the midst of storms. And it is this. It is that word that comes to be translated, it is finished. Now in our Bible, that's three words, okay? I do remember how to count. In the original language, it is one long word that simply says it's done. It is, as one preacher has said, a word that if you were to have to define it, it would take every word that has ever been uttered in the history of the world and you would still have some defining to do. It's height and depth and width and breadth you cannot understand because what is happening there is when Jesus gives out that cry from the cross. It's not the final word He says from the cross because in a moment He will commit His life, His soul into the hands of the Savior, into the hands of the Father. He will give up His life. But in that moment, He declares that what started in Eden is finished. What started before the beginning of time is finished. The plan God put in place from the moment that Adam and Eve were walking this earth is done. All the things of the Old Testament have led up to this moment. Everything that comes after it hinges on this time, on this word, on this proclamation. And what Jesus is saying is, it is done. Now what's done? What's finished? They teach me in my seminary, in my Ph.D. work, that if I just wrote a sentence that said, it is finished, they're going to say, what is it? What is finished? And the truth is that there are a lot of things that are finished there, but a couple that you can understand, first of all, is the suffering of Christ is done. One of the things that I am convinced of in my own heart, I think it's probably true for you as well, is that I have seen so many pictures of the cross. That I have heard so many songs about it. That I am rarely impacted by the suffering that my Savior endured on it. It is a shame that I can sing about it without weeping. 
it is ridiculous to think that I can talk about it without my heart being pierced. Because while what it bought for me was great, what it did to him was horrible. The physical anguish started in the garden when he was so concerned, so intense about the days that were ahead that he literally, it tells us in Scripture, sweated drops of blood. It continued as he was arrested and taken before all kinds of magistrates and leaders and falsely accused, and yet he endured it as a sheep led to slaughter. As they took out the cat of nine tails and would whip it across his back and rip it after it had implanted itself in his side and would expose the flesh. As they took the crown of thorns and they embedded it into his skull. And the truth is, he didn't deserve a bit of it. Not a single part of that. He had done absolutely nothing wrong. Now, I know that there are people sometimes in court systems that say, I didn't do it. But there has never been anybody that can stand up and say, I have never, ever in my life done anything wrong. He didn't. And so when he yells out, it is finished. It is a cry of the suffering being done. It is the agony being over. It is the victory over the physical, emotional, and spiritual anguish. Remember that while he's on the cross, one of the things he utters is the opening line to Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is separated for the first time in eternity from the Father, and he cannot bear it anymore. It is finished. I think he's saying that it's finished, that the plan is done. I mean, you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve were there, they they go off course a little bit, but really the plan started before that. You see, we serve a God that is a creator God, and the first thing he created was time. He created the beginning, and then he took after that, and he decided he would create a world, a galaxy, a universe. Let me just Uh, put a little plug in for tonight. Tonight at 6 o'clock, if you don't already have a Bible study that you're a part of, some of ours have finished for a little while and we're taking a little break. Tonight at 6 o'clock right here in the sanctuary, we're going to watch really a, a video about how big and immense what God created is, but how much He still cares about us. It's called indescribable, and I cannot recommend it any higher than just to tell you, you will not be disappointed if you come. But to think that God created the galaxy, He created everything that we see, the universe, the everything that we see, the enjoyment He had in creating, the enjoyment He had in putting things out there that we would just now discover thousands of years later. And as He's doing that, He decides to take the ultimate gamble. And he finishes making man, and he turns the paintbrush over to us. And then we mess it up. Amen? We mess it up. How many of you have ever been part of a project that started off real good, and then you just do something that destroys the whole thing? How many of you have ever done that? 
God handed us the paintbrush. He says, take over. We start going our own way. People say, why in the world would he do that? Because God knows what every parent knows. Forced love is not love. And what God did is he created us in a way that we would love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and spirit. But forced love is not love. And it tells us in the Scripture that as they're in the garden and the serpent is there and God gives the punishment to man, woman, and serpent, he tells him the foreshadowing, the first gospel that one day, one day, Satan, you're going to bite the heel, but then my son will crush your head. And what he's saying on the cross is, it is finished. Now the truth is that God is allowing Satan a little freedom right now, but God has defeated Satan. Don't have any clue otherwise. It's done. But here's the thing for you and me. In those last words, what he's saying is, it is finished. The sacrifice is complete. In the Old Testament, they had a tradition that Jews still honor, Orthodox Jews to this day, called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And in that day, what would happen is that they would, they would do the normal sacrifices, but they would also bring in a goat. And they would lay the sins of the country for that year on the goat, and they would send the goat away so that the goat would take the sins of the community out of the community actually where we get the phrase scapegoat from. And what happened on the cross is Jesus is declaring those sacrifices are done. They're over. There's no need for them anymore. The book of Hebrews would tell us that He was a sacrifice once and for all. And when He says on the cross, it is finished, He says the payment has been paid. It is paid in full. So what does that mean for us? Three things this morning I want you to see real quickly. Out of that one phrase, it is finished. These are not original with me. Several years ago I read a book that I would highly recommend. It's called Six Hours, One Friday by Max Lucado, one of his first. And in there he gives these three things, and they're so good I can't improve on them, and God just impressed them on my heart this week. And the first one is this. The first thing we understand is that your life is not futile. Your life is not futile. What does that mean? That means your life has real meaning. You know, you can learn a lot about people by what they say as they're passing on from this place to their eternal destination. You know, Sigmund Freud is considered the father of modern psychotherapy, psychology. And what's interesting is he's considered to be one of the smartest men that's ever lived. He's got all these theories and ideas, things that we still talk about today. We talk about a Freudian slip even today. And on his deathbed, his deathbed that he induced by medical suicide, he was laying there and as his life was flowing out of him, he says, this is absurd. Over and over again, he repeated, this is absurd. One of the greatest minds of our era apparently thought at the end that life was meaningless. Or what about P.T. Barnum? You know P.T. Barnum, right? Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know him. He was the great, considered the 
greatest showman on earth, and they were talking about his death and was reading about that this week. And on his deathbed, as he's getting ready to pass from this life into the next, from here until eternity, P.T. Barnum is laying on the deathbed and he asks, what were the receipts at Madison Square Garden today? I don't know about you, but I hope I got better questions than that at the end. Amen? I mean, I hope that I'm thinking about more than what money came in to the company that I'm leaving I'm never going to see again. But you know, the truth is, without Christ's sacrifice on the cross, our lives would be futile. There'd be no hope. There'd be no reason. There'd be no purpose. There'd be absolutely nothing that we could do to make it any better. One of the things that keeps me going in the midst of storms, one of the things that gives me refuge in the midst of real problems is the truth that there is a purpose and a plan and that I have a reason for living. One of the things Jesus did over and over and over again in his life is as he was walking along the streets, he would see people that had been pushed aside, would see people that were no longer part of society, that had been ignored, that had been ostracized, that were outcast, and he would reach out to them, he would touch them, he would speak to them. Scripture tells that this, one of my favorite stories is the woman that had been sick for years, 12 years. And Jesus is walking along one day and she reaches out just to touch the hem of his garment. And as she does, she's healed and Jesus stops everybody. One of my favorite things to think about is Jesus stopping and saying, Hey, who touched me? And the disciples are like, Jesus is walking through 4,000 people. I mean, people are touching you, okay? And Jesus says, no, the power went out. This is what I love about that. He turns to her, and I can see her cowering there as she has come and on her face before him, not wanting him to know that she had touched him, but being found out. She looks up at him, and instead of castigating her or getting on to her or yelling at her, he looks at her, and for the first time in 12 years, someone speaks personally to her, and he says to her, daughter, term of affection. You see, the thing that the cross teaches me is that He cares about me. And it's not because I'm special. When He says it is finished, the sacrifice is done, it means your life has a purpose. I don't know if you're living for that purpose right now or not. My Gut feeling is that most people in our country, most people in our churches across this land, and most people in here are not. You're just living. And what the cross teaches us is that we have a higher hope, a better future if we'll get in line with God's purposes for our lives. You can build a great life doing it your way, but it won't be the best life. You can build a good life doing all the things that you want to do, but it will not be the life God intended for you. One of the anchors that we can hold to in that phrase is that our life is not futile. The second one is this, is that our failures are not fatal. How many of you ever mess up in here? Let me see your hands. Ever done anything wrong at all? Keep them up, all right? Get them all up. Because you're not getting them up right now, you're doing something wrong. So put it up, all right? Right? You can put them down. Scripture says, Scripture says that those who say that they are without sin make God a liar. Right? Now here's a problem with that. Is God a liar? 
No. God is truth. I mean, Jesus says, I am the way, the sometimes truth. Is that what he says? No. The truth and the life. And so we've done bad stuff. Now, the truth is that if it weren't for the cross, you and I would bear every bit of that sin and shame on ourselves continually all the time until our death, and then we would get to bear it for all eternity. Boy, that sounds fun. The harder truth is this. There are billions of people, some of you in this room probably, that have never accepted the sacrifice Jesus made on that cross, and as a result, you are carrying the weight of your sin right now. And you will until the day you die. And then for all eternity. Unless you come to understand who Jesus is and accept His gift. But what He does on that cross in saying it is finished is saying that if you will put your trust in Me, if you will believe in Me, every bit of this can be wiped clean. I heard somebody tell a story about being on the ocean with somebody, and they were trying to explain sin, and they were explaining sin to some people that had done some really bad things, some really bad things. And this person said, you know what, I, I, I just don't think God can forgive my sin. And so this person said, have you ever walked along a beach or seen a beach where there was a little bitty hole where a crab had come out of. I said, yeah, I've seen that. Well, you ever been on the beach and you've seen uh, maybe a bigger hole, maybe where a child has been building a sandcastle and they put a bigger hole beside it. They're digging into it. Yeah, I've seen that. I said, have you ever been to a beach when you've seen a really big hole? Maybe some kind of machine is making it, but it's really large. He said, yeah, I've seen that. Well, I don't understand your point. They said, when the tide comes in, what happens? all the holes they get washed away right they get smoothed out they said it doesn't matter whether it's big medium sized or little the truth is that what scripture teaches us is that our failures are not fatal because of what Christ did that means you don't have to be more good than bad that means that you don't have to go to church every time the doors are open we love seeing your face but being here ain't going to get you to heaven, all right? It means you don't have to count beads. It means you don't have to climb stairs to a statue. It means you don't have to lie on a bed of nails. In fact, it means you don't even have to be good at all. One of the words that Jesus says on the cross is to a guy that had lived his life terribly. And he just says to him in the end, in a final gasp, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say after you've worked some things out, after a few years. He says today. And the truth is that the glory of what Christ did on the cross is no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, that when you trust in Him, He wipes it all clean. Here's the last thing. Your death is not final. I'm going to tell you, if I knew that my life didn't have any meaning, it'd be hard to make it through anything. 
if I knew that I had to carry the sins that I have, the things that I've done wrong for the rest of my life and into eternity, life wouldn't be worth living. And I want to tell you this. If I thought that this is all there is, you can have it. I love you. I love being your pastor. I love my wife. I love my kids. But the truth is, there's too, just too much junk here. Amen? And if I thought that this was it, this is all we got, you live your 75 years and then you're done, I'd say forget it. I, uh, I mentioned P.T. Barnum and Sigmund Freud. It's interesting to contrast them with people like Mother Teresa who just kept repeating the name of Jesus as she died. Or a guy like D.L. Moody, who as he was laying on his deathbed says, I think it's time. I don't see a valley ahead. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. I must go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is written to a group of people that wondered what happened basically after death. And to those people that had died, you see, they lived under the belief in the first century that Jesus was coming back any day. And Paul says to them, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. We want you to understand that you're not going to get ahead of them. You're not going to get in line before them. We haven't abandoned them, that they're going to be here. But what's interesting is it says that we're looking forward to a day because it means not only that our death isn't final, but it means that someday God's going to bring all this to a close. And one day we will celebrate with the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this earth will be remade into a new place where new heavens and new earth will be joined together and we will dwell in the presence of our Lord always. And in that First Thessalonians passage it says, and with the cry of the archangel, in the moment it will happen. There have been some theologians that have tried to figure out what that cry would be. I mean, could it be, we're here, it's time, come on. I heard one that said this, and I like what he had to say. I don't know if this is true or not, but it sounds like it could be. He said that, I believe when the archangel gets here, the words that will be shouted from his mouth is, enough. Enough sadness, enough sickness, enough death, enough war, enough famine, enough poverty, enough families being torn apart. Enough. And there are days in my life when I want to shout for Him. Amen? And say, enough! But I hold out hope because I know that on the cross, even though I can't see it right now, Jesus has already told me, enough's enough. It's finished. It's done. And one day, you're going to see it completely fulfilled. What is hope all about? It's having a place of refuge in the midst of storms. And I don't have a clue what you're going through right now. But I can tell you this. If you'll trust in Jesus, you can place your trust, your refuge, your shelter in Him. And He is stronger than any building. He is stronger than any storm shelter. He is the rock of our salvation. He is our refuge. And let me just tell you that the things I know for sure are when you trust in Him and you follow Him, your life is not futile. Your 
failures are not fatal and your death is not final. That is hope.